hello there. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Not The Top 20 podcast. Not a Monday podcast. We decided, George, to give ourselves the bank holiday weekend off, which was very kind from our benevolent bosses who are ourselves, but also slightly out of sadness because yesterday, bank holiday Monday, we should have been at Wembley. We should have been at Wembley for what I believe would have been the championship playoff final and League One would have been the day before with League Two having happened the weekend before. Um, Somewhat sad circumstances uh, yesterday I found, especially because it was such a lovely day and we love Wembley in the sun. Yeah, very sad not to be there. Um, I was thinking that if the championship playoff final had happened the day after uh, the League One, which we know it would have done, and I'd watch Oxford either win or lose, I'd have been probably very... Uh, had a bit of a sore head, probably, in the sunshine. But, um, and then but it you, wasn't and then to you, be... And then you'd have seen Millwall beat Brentford on uh, on, on Bank wow. Holiday Monday. Imagine <laughs> that. That wasn't, that wasn't your prediction when we did the prediction pods. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, very sad, of course, that we weren't watching playoff football. But... It does feel like we might be watching some playoff football quite soon, which is quite exciting. Nice little teaser. Well, just to explain, I think the best way to sum up what today's podcast is, and just using a classic bit of alliteration because it's Tuesday, not Monday, is Tapas Tuesday. George, what do you take that to mean? Tapas Tuesday, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. A few small plates being hosted to you by your two Podron Peppers, me and you. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a bit of everything. Chorizo cooked in wine. There's going to be some gambas, some patatas bravas, all the classics. I always, I always like the idea that, that some like classic Brit would go to Spain and think that patatas bravas meant brave potatoes because in many ways they are being so hot and covered well, in sauce. Yeah, I mean, you and I have our own... Um, tapas story from a few months ago <laughs> oh, yeah. when we when we went to uh, Valencia to go and watch Valencia Chelsea and play a bit of golf as well. Um, we had to be, we flew to Alicante to avoid heightened air costs um, because obviously all the Chelsea fans were flying to Valencia, but Alicante isn't far away. So we flew to Alicante, hired a car, and it was my job to. I was tasked with finding us somewhere to go and have lunch, and I'd looked for like a few really nice places in the hills where we could go and, and share, you know, a, a, a jug of sangria and, and tuck into some chorizo. Well, there is a scenic um, route. There's quite a nice route from Alicante yeah. to Valencia, or you well, can drive to... Benidorm. <laughs> and so we, and we, you know, I think you were quite keen to get to the hotel and, and kind of get get a few beers open, stop driving. So we decided to go the, the uh, more, the quicker route past Benidorm and I just thought you know when are we ever going to get a chance to go to Benidorm again so we went for lunch in Benidorm uh on the I mean I'm sure some of the listeners would have would have frequented the uh the town a few times um we hadn't been there before we went to to Tapas Alley yeah um, which is which is also what your nickname is when you're living in in Spain um for half a year uh and and we ate at a restaurant I'd, I'd done the the age-old thing of looking at TripAdvisor and finding out what the best restaurant was on Tapas Alley. You're normally very good at that. Well, I was, and we sat down in front of it. We ordered, and then as soon as we ordered, I realised that I had picked the wrong restaurant, and the awning had been quite they're very, misleading. They're very we tightly were, packed in the Tapas Alley. We were actually Alley. sat outside the wrong one. And I must say, what we ate afterwards, it's very hard to get a, a bad meal in Spain, I think, but it was absolutely disgusting. Um, putting prawns in your mouth that basically dissolved as you put them in. Oh, my God. 
who knew that a croquetta could be so foul? Um, <laughs> I just the thing that I like the most is you know we were very excited to be on a short holiday, and I just like the sort of the moment where you realise that as excited as you are, and as nice as the weather is, and you're with your pal, and you're on your way to play golf and have a few beers. But how quickly do you turn to each other and say, do you know what? I'm not sure about this, mate. I think after I had a, I had a meatball and uh, turned a shade, a shade of green and you felt a bit bad after that. But anyway, that was... <laughs> and we also parked, parked the car park underneath Benidorm and it was quite tight and we had quite a big car. And there was a moment driving out where you had to floor the accelerator to stop us from rolling backwards down the ramp. And it was one of the funniest moments of my life um, uh, because yeah. you kind of felt like there might be uh, financial damage rather than physical damage. So it wasn't too scary, but there you yeah, go. extraordinary stuff. Well, we say, so, we say all that to give you some ready, context. Ready, steady, Manchego. Yeah. <laughs> we say that, all that, to give you some context into how much we love tapas and how excited we are to provide the Tuesday tapas pod um, with your host, uh, Ali Canti, Ali... Uh, Maxwell and George and George Alec. Um and, and, and we're going to start with I suppose after a lot of giggling already it's probably the end of that for the moment because we're going to start with um, a, an update of the situation we are not Matt Slater we love having him on to explain things uh, not around today but hopefully we'll be getting him on in the future weeks when things start to ramp up but we do think that it's worth summing a couple of things up to give as much clarity as we can to you guys who are listening and struggling to follow all of the different moving parts, the different arguments and the different decisions that need to be made across the three divisions. Now, there has been a lot of noise around all of these topics. We don't want to muddy the waters, but it is quite hard to remain clear as you talk through it. So um, I'm going to give a general note to start with, and then we might just look at each division and see where we think we're at with each one. Uh, Interestingly, I was reading an article on the Sky Sports site uh, about Phil Wallace, the Stevenage chairman, and his strong views on relegation. As you can imagine, he's not that keen. He actually thinks it would be, uh, I I can't remember what the word was, was it immoral or unethical or something like that. He's, He's not up for relegation, it's fair to say, is Phil Wallace. But buried within that piece, I thought there were some quite interesting lines. Um... It says that the board, the EFL board, are expected to discuss how the framework could be written into EFL regulations uh, before a potential EGM is called for clubs to vote on any plans. And if it is passed, this framework that could be written into EFL regulations, each division can then hold separate votes on whether to continue playing or to curtail the 1920 season based on the agreed framework. Now, that seemed quite noteworthy in an article that wasn't really about that because when we spoke to Matt last week, we were still at the point where EFL governance is such that we didn't believe you could have different outcomes for different leagues or have one league play to its conclusion with the others stopping at this point with nine or so games to go. Now, after doing a bit more digging, that having flagged up uh, in my head that there might be something going on here, what we now believe is that the EFL are working towards a point where each division can make a separate decision on how to decide the 2019-20 season, whether that's play on or stop now. Now, they are adamant, the EFL, that promotion and relegation must happen for all three divisions. But we now believe that they will attempt to pass a change in regulation which gives each specific division a specific vote on how to decide their specific division. 
if you know what I mean. So they'd need 51% of the 71 current EFL member clubs. That would be what they need to, to pass this to make it possible for them to decide uh, what to do for their own division. Uh, and they're pretty confident, we gather, that, that, that this will pass. It's kind of understandable. You can see why, because there are such different circumstances in the championship and in League Two, for example, you can understand why the majority of clubs would want to decide on their own scenarios without any input from clubs that have entirely different circumstances and scenarios. So uh, it will be interesting uh, to see how this plays out. If it's approved, if it is approved that uh, th- that there can be a change in regulation, then leagues can vote separately on the big question, which is to play all remaining games or to end the season now and use points per game to decide promotion, playoffs and relegation. And we believe that it would just be four teams in the playoffs, none of this eight-team stuff that has been uh, rumoured in League One. So hopefully that has um, uh, introduced you, if you hadn't read it already, to something that might be happening over the, the next week or so, which is quite specific to the current situation and could help ease some of the issues that were surrounding the decision-making process uh, across the EFL. Um, so yeah, in terms of timescale, we believe, and again, this is not confirmed, but we believe that the first vote, uh, which is on the, the change to the framework, which is on the, the change to regulation, will take place at the start of next week. Um, uh, this is Tuesday 26th we're recording, so the start of next week. And if that gets passed, then league-specific votes will take place next week as well, uh, providing that there is time. So still some way off, or at least a week off, um, getting some some true answers. But of course, George, in, this, in the specific divisions... You've got, as I mentioned, very different circumstances, different objectives. The championship, we are led to believe, are mostly keen to play, keen to carry on. And as such, uh, interestingly, training resumed on Monday. Teams were, were back to training on Monday, which I think from the, the... We haven't spoken to loads of people, but a couple of people that we've spoken to uh, today seemed to be feeling quite positively about getting back to training Although we must recognise that there are plenty of differing viewpoints. Yeah, I mean, with the championship, as you mentioned, it, it feels like, except for for Hull, uh, the general feeling is that they'll want to play on. I mean, I think the interesting thing about this going forward is that clubs have very much taken, this is across all leagues, clubs have very much taken a public standpoint. Um, it's something we're going to talk about, Colin, in the athletic later, but it's something that was mentioned in there by Paul Warren, which was that um, we're hearing a lot from managers. And at the end of the day, we're thinking that what managers are saying is going to align with what clubs are going to want to do. And that isn't necessarily the case because the managers don't get to vote. So some very vocal managers out there may not be uh, necessarily arguing along the lines of what the owner is going to vote for. Secondly, you've got, you know, the, the PR aspect of it. You know, firstly with Hull, I'm sure Hull's head of PR would have been um, pretty flabbergasted when he saw that Hull were the only two, only club to have uh, positive coronavirus tests mm. in the whole EFL, given that they've been so outspoken in terms of what they want to happen. Um, but in terms of of the other side of it is you've got take you know Oxford for an example, a club who would be benefited by the season ending now. And I'm only using them as an example because I know obviously more about what's going on there than others. And, you know, there are a couple more. They're suited by the season ending now. But publicly, they have 
said that they would want to finish the season. You have Darren McAntony, owner of Peterborough, saying, you know, these clubs want to finish the season. Mm. But but realistically, if it's an, if it's an anonymous vote, I would say it's very, very unlikely that clubs in that position, you know, Oxford are in a precarious position with 45 minutes to go of the season. They were in ninth, now they're in third. Um, why would they vote not to um, end it now and move forward? That goes into the championship where you're going to have a lot of clubs in the championship who are going to toe the party line of wanting to play on. However, those that are concerned financially and have clubs and have a, a good majority of their staff on furlough, on furlough are not necessarily going to, if they think there's any possible chance of there being a suspension, would probably reconsider how they would vote. It seems pretty clear in the championship that's not going to happen and that there'll be an overwhelming, possibly like a 23-1 vote in order to, to, to finish the season. But in League One, it just seems like you're second guessing. You know, Matt said it on the pod last week about the, the specific issues for the bigger clubs, whether that's um, Sunderland, Ipswich, these clubs who will have to pay out a big um, fee to their fans in terms of season ticket refunds if they can't, um, if, if, if the season is called to a close early. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's a bit of a mess to try and second guess what's going to happen. Mm. Um, I think the fact that it's now, we're now in a position where the vote will be split into different leagues makes complete sense. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make it much more clear, especially in League One, what's going to happen. I like that you've introduced an aspect to this, which I hadn't necessarily thought of, which is uh, the potential for a scenario not unlike the popular game show Golden Balls. I don't know how aware you are of the show Golden Balls and of its concept, but essentially when all's said and done at the very end of the game, there are, there are two players left and they have a certain amount of money that they uh, share except we both have a ball, George, you and I, we've got 50 grand, let's say, and if we both reveal the ball that says share on it, then we get 25 grand each. If exactly. We, if we both reveal the ball that says steal, then we get nothing. But if mm. one of us says steal and one of us says share, more likely to be you, I think, in this scenario, uh, then, you, <laughs> then you'd get all the money. And they have this great discussion. They always ham it up massively, right? And they always say the same thing to each other, which is like, I promise we've been through this together and I would never, ever steal this 25 grand from you. And there's all sorts of excitement and histrionics. And then mostly they share, but every now and again, someone just thinks brazenly and goes for the steal and takes the money. And I suppose I say all that because I just like talking about golden balls, but also because... Just a carrot. Also, <laughs> exactly. Also, would you have carrots with tapas? Probably not. Anyway, but also just to say that you've raised the point, it's very possible there might be a difference between what we think a club might do, what they've said they might do, um, and how they actually vote. So it does muddy the water somewhat further. I mean, we were trying to go through league by league last week, and we realised that it's very difficult not to sort of hop around a bit. But just to touch on what you said there about League One, I mean, that there are a group of League One um, sort of local journals or beat writers, as they would call them in the States, who have, who have come together and put together an article talking each of them about how they expect their club or the club that they cover how, how they expect them to vote. And it's quite interesting because uh, most of them kind of make sense 
uh, when you think about self-interest and what would suit them. And then you've got Bristol Rovers, who the, the local writer, and I haven't worked out who, who that is, uh, they're part of, of a group that these that the writer thinks would vote to continue playing, which considering the form that they were in, the likelihood of reaching the playoffs, which is almost minimal, uh, the fact that I think they've torn up their pitch during lockdown, and, and it, I've seen it described as a sandcastle, uh, and the fact that they already lose a lot of money, which their owner has to basically foot the bill for, uh, and this would see them, we gather, lose even more, seems remarkable. So who knows, really, if if, if the public noises will be matched by votes. Um, you mentioned two positive COVID-19 tests in the championship. Uh, out of 1,014, so quite a small percentage, really, uh, both of them from Hull City. Uh, another another tapa. I suppose uh, to use the singular from uh, from the championship Ta. is not to do with COVID nineteen, but it is uh, another fairly uh, uh, not going to say murky, but it's a tricky situation regarding the ownership at Charlton. Uh, for a bit of context, Tanu Nima and Matt Southall had a or Southall had a very public falling out. Couldn't really work out who was in charge of the team. Now. Uh, Tanu Nemo is trying to sell the team and now we are hoping, George, that they can find a stable owner to buy the team. What is the latest on the Charlton ownership fiasco? Who knows? Um, it, it was kind of a developing story over the weekend. Alan Nixon of The Sun uh, ran a story that Hugh Jenkins of um, Swansea fame, Swansea to the Premier League ownership fame, uh, was set to buy the club um, just needed ratification from the EFL before it went through, which was, you know, seemed like very, very good news after the De Châtelet disaster and then this just extraordinary couple of months under new ownership. Um, Jenkins certainly seems like a very, very appealing option to Charlton fans. You know, somebody who has overseen the success at another football club, who has a track record of, of recruiting very, very good managers, good player recruitment, runs sustainably. Um, and, you know, has sold them on in, 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 into good hands as well. Um, but it's never that simple. Um, and it seems like everybody's famous, everybody's favourite pantomime villain when it comes to buying a football club. Um, and that's probably doing him oh, too much justice there. Um, Lawrence Bassini, uh, formerly of Watford, and of course was the, you know, the wedge stopping um, the sale of, of Bolton just a few months ago um, or, or nearly a year ago. Um, has said that he is interested in buying the club. He's also interested in, in a renewed purchase of Bolton, which I can't really get to grips with either. He's already recently tried to buy Oldham. Um, it feels like he's somebody who, I mean, he, he certainly likes to get his name in the headlines when it comes to buying football clubs. Um, and Jenkins has since said that his period of exclusivity, his 48-hour period where he was the only person um, who could buy the club has now lapsed. And he... You know, there's a few issues, I think, mainly surrounding the eventual sale. Um, so the, in, the, in Matt Southall's takeover, they agreed a, a sale of of the Valley and I think the training ground as well over the next five years. So any buyer would have to either take that on or, or renegotiate. And I think that's been a stumbling block. Uh, it seems like Jenkins is still very keen to do so. Um, Richard Corley um, from the SLP, the SLP sports editor, uh, tweeted yesterday saying Panorama. Uh, Panorama is actually the name of the um, consortium that bought Charlton last time rather than BBC doing any investigative work at this time into the sale of Charlton. Uh, Panorama have confirmed to directors that Lawrence Bassini is not involved in the ongoing sale of shares. 
So that that I would say is positive news for Charlton fans. Seemingly, Bassini is again just making a lot of noise without much substance, although he is said to have proven his source of funds to the EFL. So, uh, and it seemed to be uh, Jenkins alludes to the fact that there are three or four parties who are interested in buying um, Charlton. So the fact that it's not Bassini doesn't necessarily mean that the current sale of shares is 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 to Jenkins. There could be parties that we are not privy to. Um, but it, it, yeah, it seems like this. This takeover, which was met with such hope um, and renewed enthusiasm, mm. uh, I think the lasting legacy will just be new contracts for for Lee Bowyer and and Johnny Jackson, which was of course met uh, with a lot of, of of pleasure by the by the Charlton fans. But it does feel like pretty soon Charlton will be in new hands and just um, speaking independently. Uh, I I hope for their case, it's not Mr. Bassini who, mm. who gets his hands on the club. Yeah, things went south pretty quickly, didn't they? Um, well, I'm certainly in agreement with all that. I think one of the things that we often see uh, in cases like this, which can be um, difficult to observe, is that uh, the desperation, in some sense, that uh, the, the urgency, I suppose, is probably the right word, of the sale, because this is a club that needs funding, this is a club that needs keeping afloat in what is obviously an, an absurd and very very difficult time to run a club anyway um which will be accruing great losses and involve quite a lot of money being put in just to keep it running um that is now quite urgent after the fallout from from these sort of short-lived owners that have been in charge or not really been in charge uh so you know that does mean that with it with urgency i think hugh jenkins is is kind of has mentioned the need for a prospective buyer like him to to be very clear about what it is that he's taking on to do a lot of due diligence and that can take time so that there is that sort of battle as well when there's a bit of urgency um Lawrence Bassini by the way is someone who um allegedly when he had he, he had some foray into ownership with Watford a while ago uh, it's worth googling more about that but uh when everything went south there after Watford lost in the playoff to Crystal Palace at the time uh, under Gianfranco Zola. Uh, Lawrence Bassini texted the deputy sports editor of the Watford Observer, Frank Smith, and said, how's the feeling in the town now? What goes around comes around. This is my happiest memory of Watford. Uh, And if you want to learn more about him and his involvement uh, on the fringes or within football, uh, then as always, we would recommend that you read everything that Kieran Maguire writes and tweets on Twitter, but also his excellent podcast, Price of Football, as well. And you can get a bit more insight into uh, Bassini's uh, performances, I suppose. Um, In in League One, George, we kind of touched on it here. I called it the naughty middle child last week, and that's because although they have very different objectives in the Championship and League Two, the the leagues are mostly aligned. uh, And this is where basically because of the situation that the league table was in with this ridiculous clutch of teams still in with a shout of the playoffs at the very least, if not actually the second automatic spot, certainly too. Um, it's it's much more uh, difficult to find a, a consensus. I did mention this this article. Um, I read it from Chris Phillips. He is the South End writer. He tweeted it out. So there's how you can and see what I'm talking about. But it's, it's League One local journalists um, were, uh, sort of putting forward what they think the team they cover will do in the vote. Uh, The current projection, according to these guys, is nine teams would vote to play the remaining games to a conclusion, 11 to end the season with points per game implemented, and three yet to be decided. So given, you know, based on that, the three would be 
quite important here, I think it's fair to say. Um, interestingly, one of them is, is Southend, who are right at the bottom, who, to all intents and purposes, are, you know, were sleepwalking towards relegation with very little hope of survival. Um, Matt Slater, who is a Southend fan, had tweeted yesterday that from what I hear, Southend aren't grumbling at all. And Ron Martin, the chairman, has said he's okay with the plan as Southend deserve to go down, has also said we'll be back and he's going to invest in the academy and do it right. So certainly in terms of words, if you take that at face value, that that would be encouraging as a response, I suppose. Um, It would appear that he's not acting in any sort of um, desperate self-interest there. Um, But as mentioned, trying to predict who is going to vote what seems like a bit of a waste of time at this stage. Um, 23 teams in the third tier this season. So the campaign will be cut short if 12 teams back the proposal. Um, And, you know, I would lean towards that being more likely, but it's going to be an almighty mess. That's for sure. There's going to be a lot of arguing. Um, Good news for Bolton and Burton. Uh, A a benevolent act by Manchester United, uh, of all people. Mm. They have waived loan fees. Uh, Ethan Hamilton on loan from Man U at Bolton. And the excellent goalkeeper, Kieran O'Hara, uh, at Burton they've waived their loan fees for that which is a great relief to those two clubs so I thought that was worth mentioning in a week where United also uh, seem to be keen to take action against football manager um, for some sort of licensing disagreement which is a real blow especially given our, <coughs> our strong feelings about that well, game yeah, I think I'm boycotting Manchester United for the time being <laughs> until until they drop that lawsuit I'm, yeah, I'm not getting involved in any way well, shape or form with the club you're, you're in the Premier League with St Albans. You've got to play against this Manchester United side that should potentially not be called that on the game. Red Devils. Um, what would they? Because because Juventus are called Zebra. So what what would they call? Uh, what, what would they call? Um, well, it's Pro Evo, isn't it? Man- Manchester Reds, I think, would be something like that. Or the Red well, Devils. Juventus called Zebra in Pro Evo. No, no, no. But that's what Man U were called on Pro Evo. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to think what they would be. What's a red animal? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I honestly can't think of one. I can only I think reckon, of a, a red I ant. I reckon they'll be they'll be like Diablos. Diablo. <laughs> right, in the French version. Just no. De- that's just French for devil, you know? Yeah, I know. But right. then like zebra is zebra in French. <laughs> that, that's obviously what they're going for is colourful animals in a foreign language. I think you'll find zebra is zebra in Italian. <laughs> Not in uh, French. That is why they're called zebra. In which case in which case it'll just be devils. <laughs> An absolute roller coaster of EFL tapas. This podcast. I, do, I just can't believe that I can't think of a single red animal, except I, for you know if you head down to Benidorm you'll see a few. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you certainly will. Look, um, good time to uh, touch on as we as we sort of have transitioned between Championship and League One. The uh, one of the many excellent things on the Athletic uh, it, since lockdown, and I mean. It's a hell of an effort that they have continued to churn out quite so much good stuff because Lord knows we've been struggling without actual football matches to talk about each week. Um, They signed up James Chester, who's on loan at Stoke from Aston Villa, uh, and Paul Warren, of course, manager of Rotherham, uh, to do a joint column, which is quite fun. And, well, clearly there have been plenty now, eight, eight at least. Um, And the, the, the most recent column, which came out over the weekend, really interesting. I think it's just, you know, They've both been very honest about their perspectives. And I think reading what James Chester has to say, and I'm not going to give it away, I I would ask you to head to The Athletic and read the piece and sign up if you haven't uh, by going to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20 pod. But 
it's definitely worth reading James Chester's perspectives and trying to put yourself in the shoes of a player rather than the shoes of uh, a fan or of, of, of an owner, potentially. We're hearing a lot from certain owners and you can understand why some of them are keen to, to, to either play or not to play. It's just worth pointing out that ultimately the players are the actors in this great theatre of, of football that we love, that we want to get back on track, that has a lot of importance, both financially, but also um, just generally in the community and uh, and for fans. But the players are the ones who ultimately will be putting themselves at risk, will be in this quite strange situation that we've seen in the Bundesliga of having to put masks on if they're sitting on the bench and have to be two metres apart on the bench, but also go up for headers with centre forwards and centre backs. Also, you know, uh, put in tackles which involve getting very close to other people. So, you know, James Chester's wife is pregnant. He talks very openly about just that decision that you have to make between, well, I'm quite keen to go back and see my mates and do my job, but I've also got more things to think about. So that's quite interesting. And Paul Warren, George, you, you touched on. I mean, he's pretty classic in the column, isn't he? His voice really comes across very strongly. <laughs> yeah, it does. And... I mean, it's just a good insight, I think. You know, when football first went, we were inundated, um, especially by us, by by chats with players and, and managers. Um, but I guess that's slightly been scaled back. So it's interesting to, to hear Paul Warren's thoughts on the return of the Bundesliga, watching German football for a bit, a little bit on uh, on his, his thinking, uh, watching The Test, um, which is, of course, the cricket documentary that's on uh, Amazon Prime. Um, it's just it's just good insight, I guess, into two guys who are, are right there and are desperate to get back playing. I did really like, you know, the, the internet's been on quite good form this weekend. I would say a few a few good lines knocking around, not necessarily uh, relating to football, but I, I did enjoy James Chester's line, um, which out of context would look quite interesting. Just uh, having a long cotton bud down my throat and another up my nostrils was fine, really. Yeah. Just a lovely turn of phrase. Anything, anything, yeah, that that would not be fine for me. I do not like <laughs> the idea of that. I definitely don't like the idea of that. Um, good time to share that I once, uh, genuinely, I can't believe I'm telling this story on the pod. Uh, Please I, do. I once had to go to hospital when I was like 15, old enough for this not to be the th- a thing that happened. I once had to go to hospital because I had some roast beef stuck in my gullet. And it wouldn't go. You told me it's before. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not really for you. This it's for the the people listening. <laughs> um, I say all that because it is relevant to what uh, James Chester said. I mean, they, the, the doctors. There's no easy way of saying this. They wanted to see what we were working with in terms of uh, in terms of how much of an issue this was going to be. Thankfully, I could still breathe. It wasn't blocking my windpipe, but it was very much lodged in my gullet, which meant I couldn't swallow anything. And they wanted to take a look at things. So they put a camera, tiny camera, genuinely up my nose and down the back of my throat so that they could take a look at it. And the feeling of that is like, I've actually had the feeling a bit recently with hay fever. It's that feeling of something just catching or tickling the very back of your throat. And there's no mm. way of itching that scratch it is it's absolutely horrible they could use that easily as a form of torture for me if you ever need to get any info out of me george do the old um camera down the nose trick that'll sort it you, everyone will be glad to hear that they did they did eventually genuinely anesthetize me and poke that bit of roast beef out and we cracked on with our lives but yeah um <laughs> george in league two there's not a huge amount of news really because uh this is kind of the if if league one's the naughty middle child this is sort of the 
the, the well-behaved, the goody two-shoes, I suppose. Uh, they were pretty much unanimous in, in everything they voted for. They don't want to play anymore. They would like to end the season with points per game. I think some of the teams, I've seen, I've seen a lot of quotes from the chairman of Exeter, seems to sort of feel like actually having to play the playoffs, you know, comes with quite a lot of issues and dangers as well. But, you know, they would be one of the teams heading into a four-team playoff. The one thing that was interesting about the League Two initial vote or the indi- the indicative vote was that they, they suggested they didn't want Stevenage to be relegated. 20 teams voted against that. So, you know, given the EFL seem pretty clear that, that, that they want that to happen, that's kind of the big point of contention. Phil Wallace, as I mentioned, Stevenage chairman, says there's no integrity in relegation. And it's quite interesting because you roll your eyes and you think, come on, mate, you know, self-interest, of course you'd say that. And it's just interesting to read the actual quote to see what he said. He said, there's no integrity in allowing teams to play to win promotion, but not allowing teams in the same league to play to avoid relegation. So he's referring to teams being able to play out a playoff and one of them get promoted, but not let other teams play to avoid relegation. There's no integrity in ignoring the overwhelming vote by League Two clubs that told them they didn't want to see any expulsion from the EFL by a points per game formula. So, you know, I always think there's just so much being shouted at the moment and it's so hard to keep up, but it is... There's almost always merit to some extent in everyone's point of view. And that's what makes the whole thing so difficult. Um, I mean, not to bring things down further because we don't love talking about this stuff because it, you know, it, it, it's not particularly enjoyable to talk about all these issues that, that have been caused. But just to run you through some headlines on BBC Sport that I saw earlier today. This is aside from any conversation about ending the season, the hows and the whys, promotion, relegation. Here are a smattering of headlines. Uh, Football pyramid will be destroyed. Uh, A separate headline, everyone is going to suffer. Uh, A separate headline, how coronavirus has hit football. Oh no, that's the same one. Everyone is going to suffer how coronavirus has hit football. Uh, Government should create a bailout fund. Huddersfield owner Phil Hodgkinson thinks as many as 50 or 60 clubs could go bust. Uh, You know... (laughs) We're going to be talking about a lot more uh, ultimately important stuff than promotion and relegation and finishing seasons uh, once we've once we've gone past this, hopefully in the next few weeks. So uh, some concern there. Um, and now we get on to a segment that is a bit lighter, a bit more fun. We asked you guys yesterday if you had any things you'd like us to ask or you'd like to ask us. That we- us to ask. <laughs> Give us some questions. We'll ask them. We could ask each other, maybe, George. For example, a question from Tom. And a question now from me to you. What are your thoughts on a salary cap in the EFL? Would it work? Nice, easy one to start. <laughs> I mean, would it work? I think if it was implemented properly, then it would have to work. Um, I think we now have seemingly a stronger um, EFL chair who will be much happier to pursue clubs who fail to fall into line. I think that maybe... Sean Harvey um, was a little bit, I think he aligned himself very closely to the clubs, whereas I think Rick Parry is going to be looking to govern and to make sure that the general way that EFL is run and how clubs are run is more sustainable. Um, I I don't think you can argue against the idea of a salary cap if the end game is to ensure that clubs are run sustainably. There might be a moral issue, I guess, in terms of levelling the playing field. And a lot of the people out there think that if you're willing to spend more, you know, if you're willing to, you know, if you've got a benevolent owner who's willing to put more money in, 
then you should be allowed to, in effect, um, use that irrespective of your attendances, irrespective of your match day income. And I don't agree with that, but I know some people do, and that's fine. But what we don't want to happen and what will happen and what we, we see is that clubs that are run in that way, once that money is gone and suddenly they are in a very, very precarious position and measures being taken in order to prevent this from happening um, are important. And there's, you know, we spoke to Matt Slater about the regionalization of League One and League Two, which I guess in an abstract way would work because you wouldn't, the traveling costs would be less um, attendances would be higher because of more away fans, um, but there it's still you know you're, you're you've got to work out a cost per club. Um, it doesn't necessarily affect you more based on the size of your club, which is what's needed. Whereas with a salary clap, there's a quantifiable amount that you can ensure that that clubs are saving and clubs are being run successfully. So yeah, I mean I I think that it would be. A, a good thing um there's obviously some issues with how it would enable clubs certain clubs to develop um but i i can't really see many reasons you would you would stand in the way of it i, I agree i think the yeah the ultimate goal and and this is where the would it work question is kind of key is that the ultimate goal in introducing this is an improvement in the financial health of the english pyramid uh which means clubs starting to lose a lot less money, starting to be a lot less beholden to the personal finances of an individual or a group of individuals who may well be able to foot the bill forever. But too many of, we've seen over the last few years, cannot do that. And the problems that clubs and therefore fans and communities and players and staff get into, uh, which affect them mentally and physically sometimes as well, health-wise, uh, is what we're trying to avoid. So in that sense, a salary cap makes sense if it was implemented properly. There would need to be, a, obviously, really very clear guidelines. It would have to be very strictly policed. The EFL would need to have some, you know, some people working for them who would be on top of financial forecasting. It would have to be very precise, and it would be very, very difficult to do that. You know, you'd probably also want to align it with... Um, a need for owners to, you know, when they buy a club, but even incumbent owners to have set aside in a, a separate account or a, somewhere, uh, let's say six months or 12 months uh, cash that would be able to run the club if they can't start to run it by other measures. These are the sorts of things that have been floated as, you know, things that if they were implemented properly would surely improve the financial situation of clubs. If you did that, there would be real pain on the sporting side. It would be, it would change our game and a lot of the things that we accept to be truths of the English football pyramid, um, player salaries being one of them, transfer fees being another one. All of the things that we hold as sort of norms, those things would change significantly. Now, probably due to the situation of coronavirus, that's going to happen anyway. That's kind of been accelerated. We might have had an issue down the line with English football exploding due to financial issues. Now we, we probably are having that. Phil Hodgkinson reckons 50 or 60 clubs might go bust. Now that seems extreme, but maybe without some sort of bailout, who knows? So I guess what I'm saying is it's going to be very, very painful if we have to do that. Certainly from a player's perspective, and I, and I think, again, I'd like to put forward 
the perspective as I see it, not being a football player, clearly, but the perspective as I see it of a certain group of players for whom I think this is going to be a really difficult period. And this is going away a bit from salary cap, but I just wanted to bring it up. A group of players, let's say between 26 and 31 is who I've been thinking of a lot recently. It's quite an arbitrary number, but essentially I'm trying to cordon off players towards the end of their career who have enjoyed a full career on uh, you know, the sort of financial terms that we all sort of accept uh, th- that's worked more or less on a tiered system or dependent on the finances of the club. They're coming to the end of their career. Hopefully will have started to make some plans about what they might do afterwards. Hopefully will have had savings like people do as they get older, ideally. Young players probably haven't started to earn the sorts of money um, to become used to a footballer's wage, maybe haven't had the opportunities yet. And that can be a problem as well. I think we're going to see a lot of young players who are maybe going to be released by clubs that they've come through without having any body of work to show to other clubs who might not be picked up because they just haven't got enough minutes to show for themselves. And that's going to be an issue. But this group that I'm talking about between 26 and 30, these are guys who would have had a few contracts now who will be used to a certain level of income. Now you might say, well, it's pretty high level of income being a footballer, but it's kind of here nor there really. If you were imagining that in your work, you had a very strong idea of what you were worth and you knew that you could for 10 years negotiate from a position of strength and leverage a certain amount of money and now you're being told actually for the level you're at that's just completely unfeasible you know let's take a let's take a massive cut here well that's going to hit players really really hard especially guys who are out of contract this summer and it must be a really really uncertain really difficult time set aside coming back and playing and any health risks just purely financial I think it's going to be really tough for that group of players to essentially a lot of them be released and be faced with a massively different financial reality with only a certain amount of years left to be a professional anyway and probably some questions about whether it's worth it and most likely an age where they haven't had to start thinking seriously about what they might do employment-wise if they can't sustain a career in football. So that's something, as you can tell, I've been thinking quite a lot about um, and I think it's just one of many really difficult situations. But... um, I, I do think there's an extent to which players in general aren't necessarily being heard as much um, uh, unless they've got a really incendiary opinion that, that, the, that the media want to put forth. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's worth people starting to think about the realities of everyone, but certainly in that sense of players. Something a bit more fun, George. Um, I don't know what the fun tap, bit of tapas would be. I think that's a matter of taste, I guess. But Ooh, um, probably, the, probably the croquetta, I think. Yeah. That's one where everyone's like, yep, yeah, 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 yeah. Give me a croquetta right now in my face. What I like about a croquetta, and, you know, there's a certain extent to which you can say this for for most foods, but there is a real scale of good croquetta and how that tastes and how that feels versus really bad croquetta and how that tastes and how that feels. And everybody is an expert. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But uh, what was I going to say? I remember... Would you say that the Brazilian staple pau de queijo, which are those like balls of croquetta, sort of deep mm. fried cheesy potatoey balls? I think that's they're certainly part of the same family as as a croquetta, even if it's not yeah. called the same. Um, even I, I would say the old supli arancini oh, um, nice. from Italy. You just got different kind of types everywhere. Yeah. What's our version in England? Um, what is our chip, version? Chip, chip, just chipping. Yeah, just chip, just chips. Um, my point was going to be, uh, this is it's a nice mixture of memories on this pod as well. Um, 
we were both at the uh, World Cup in 2014 in Brazil, although our paths only crossed very briefly. This is in the pre-pod days. Um, I ate so many powder queijos because like when you're at the World Cup and you're whatever I was, 21, 22 years old, there was a, a lot of time for drinking and watching football and not a huge amount of time for actually feeding yourself and eating the right things. So there was a lot of uh, just balls of potato and cheese picked up from a street vendor at very cheap price and Jesus Christ when I got back from two weeks in Brazil I, I was a powder queijo I was just a breaded ball of fat and cheese and potato and it took me quite a long time to recover anyway <laughs> Jonesy asks fantasy EFL transfers right up my street this players that you would like to see at particular clubs I mean it's open to interpretation here I've picked a player from each league that I would like to see at a certain clubs. So I'll run you through it. Um, I'll start at the championship level. Now, with all due respect to Barnsley, I think whether the season is played out or not, they've probably got too big a gap. Uh, never say never, but I think they will be playing in League One or whatever League One looks like next season. They've got a player that we like a lot in Corley Woodrow. Uh, he is a player that has really benefited from his time at Barnsley, having sort of struggled to find a home, I think it's fair to say, with Fulham and then with Bristol City on loan, various loans, put it that way. But he's finally coming of age. He's 25 now. And we started to work out last season that he was a good goal scorer. That translated pretty well in, in a team that was struggling at the start of this championship campaign. But I think everyone now, thanks to Gerhard Struber, who has opened our eyes to the full skill set of Cordy Woodrow. Strubsy. Dropping, dropping deep and linking play as well as scoring goals from range and spraying it out wide, getting into the box. Just a, a really good all-round player that we've seen develop in front of our eyes over the last few months before lockdown. Uh, I think basically any championship team should be interested at least in inquiring about how much Cordy Woodrow would cost to take from Barnsley. I don't know what's realistic in the post-COVID transfer market, but I think it I think it'd be a shame for him to be a League One player next season, that's for sure. And I, as I said, I think there'll be lots of teams that could be interested in him. So, I mean, because he's become this sort of Swiss Army knife attacking player, that means for me there's no obvious system that I think he has to play in. So, I mean, I'd be happy for anyone to buy him, really. But someone like a, a Preston or a Bristol City, he basically improve any team, I think, in the Championship. So, Corley mm. Woodrow, that's my first EFL fantasy transfer. Uh, do you want to go... Alternate? Yeah. yeah. I'll, no, I can take one now. Nice. Um, you know, there might not be an EFL team for long, but I'm going to send one of the players you talk about the most to probably the team you talk about the most. And I'd like to see Ivan Tony turning up Ellen Road. Um, because wow. no matter what you think of, no matter what the weather's like on Bamford Island at the moment, <laughs> um, I think we can all agree that if they had a striker who could do what Bamford does in the channels, but could also follow it up with being a little bit more clinical in front of goal, um, then Leeds will be playing in the Premier League now. Imagine how many <laughs> imagine how many goals he'd have scored in this Leeds team. Um, and he fits the bill perfectly because he's big and he's strong and he's a good footballer and he runs those channels and he's very, very fluid in terms of his movement. He's not somebody who just stands up top uh, as a target man. Um, I think stylistically it would be a perfect fit. Um, and I guess it's probably not that unlikely. Well, so. he was he was one of mine as well, except it was to Brentford. I think in my head here, although we have discussed at length and were recently seen on 
Sky Sports, which was very exciting after a long hiatus. Uh, we were seen talking about Ivan Tony and Rob Dickey and Perry and G with David Prutton as part of their uh, EFL Young Stars feature. And we talked about Tony and we did talk about him stepping up to Premier League level and, and how realistic that was. Both of us falling down on, yeah, I think I think probably could go well as long as there was a bit of patience. People didn't expect him to score 15 goals immediately. Um, but I'm just putting players up one level, I think, here. So uh, Ivan Tony to Brentford is my answer here. Yeah, so um, you, you promoted Leeds I promoted, and you kept Brentford down. Oh, well, I've promoted Leeds and West Brom in this hypothetical world. And <laughs> I mean, it could be, I, I thought, well, Fulham have got Mitro. So maybe a Mitro replacement if they don't go up. Brentford yeah. are going to almost certainly sell Ollie Watkins to the Premier League. Excellent replacement. Re- pretty much ready-made, I would go as far as saying. Um, and Forrest have got, you know, Lewis Graben. Although if he was to leave, Tony would be a great signing for them. And um, Preston could certainly do with him, but probably don't have the financial clout. Anyway, Tony to Brentford, he would score loads of goals. There, that's that's it. Very nice. That's the end. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to promote a player to leagues. So that's okay. Okay, go for it. Um, and it's a crew player, but I'm not just going to do the players that we, that we um, spoke about on Sky Sports. So I'm going to take Charlie Kirk. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Up two um, leagues. Wow. Up two leagues. I'd like to see him at Bristol City. Okay. Um, I think that Bristol City's uh, recruitment strategy has been lacking in recent times. Um, and I think They've made a lot of money through their recruitment strategy. Not, maybe okay, incoming strategy. I think the way that they've built their side in the last 12 months um, has frustrated me a little bit. And I think there's a real lack of quality in creative quality in wide areas um you know lee johnson is, is a manager who can really develop young players um and is happy to to give them um you know to bring them on as players and give them time on the pitch in order to grow whilst also not throwing them in at the deep end and kirk yeah. is someone who off that left hand side with the silver kind of hugging the touchline and him coming off the flank in the, in the same way that him and pickering do it um I just think he's somebody who, who would thrive in that setup and the, the way that they play play football as well, where they're very, very happy to now sit in and play on the counter-attack, but also comfortable in possession too. Um, it just seems to me like a really nice fit. Mm. That is a nice fit. I mean, I would like to see a League Two player in Ebu Adams. I would like to, uh, given that I'm only doing one division, because I think that's more likely to have immediate thriving Thrivation. I've always, I've almost made up a word there. Um, and so, I mean, who, who wouldn't I like to see Abu Adams play for in League One? I'd certainly like to see him play in, in Oxford Yellow. Uh, I think it's a team with some very good central midfield players, but what stood Shandon Baptiste out was his ball carrying ability through the heart of midfield. And when you've got Gorin picking up the pieces in front of the back four and you've got a Brannigan spraying passes. Uh, I think mm. I, I think an Ebu Adams is the is the missing piece of the puzzle. I think he's made the most tackles in League One, so he clearly uh, sorry in League Two. So loves it, loves a tackle. He's the most fouled player in League One in League Two by absolutely miles. It's like it's like Grealish and Hazard esque levels of winning fouls, which is a stat that we both absolutely love. Uh, and I think he would just be magnificent for this Oxford side. But I dare say that is the case for. I mean, I'm looking down the League One table. It pretty much applies to everyone. Um, but, you know, soft spot for the yellows because of you. So we'll go with that. Um, Thank you. Who's your last one? My last one is Flynn Yester. Um, I'm just quite tired Mike, of hearing Mike, about... Mike Flynn? No. <laughs> 
I'm quite tired of hearing how good Flynn Downs is, um, which is, you know, the talent is quite clearly there as a ball-playing, silky centre midfielder. Um, but he has been part of a really poor Ipswich team now for 18 months. And the time has come, I think, to cut them loose and move on uh, to a side who play the kind of football where he would excel. And I think that Derby County would be nice. a team where you've got a manager in Philippe Koku who quite clearly is developing a, a, a passing style which requires um, you know, a, a high line and playing out from the back. Um, Downs being able to drop into that gap and pick up the ball and drive forward with it and pick a pass will be key to that. We've seen how Rooney's influence as being that ball player from deep areas has been um, somewhat revelationary for them. I'm not comparing Flynn Downs to Wayne Rooney. Um, Sounded but like at the it. same time, but there aren't. There, but you know, I, I think for, for the kind of football that Cocky wants to play at Derby, there aren't enough ball-playing midfielders. That is just that's just a fact. They have well, you they've know, got the, your ma- they've got the youngsters to contend with. There'd be plenty of scouts at the matches involving involving a, a Derby diamond with Flynn Esther, Jason Knight, Max Bird, and Louis Sibley. Certainly, but then even like if you're looking at people like. You know, Bird is a is a good example of a very promising player, but he's not somebody who dominates the ball. He's not somebody whose progressive passing can really get a team on the front foot. He's very tidy and competitive, and maybe that'll come. Um, but uh, it's just having that creative spark in, in deeper areas. Um, and I, I just think the time has come now where we've got to see Downs uh, prove his worth mm-hmm. and, and move on from, from Ipswich. Nice touch. Uh, Matthew, we've had this one before, I'm sure, but I'm, I also think I give a different answer each time, so that's fun. Favourite EFL stadia? I mean, I found this difficult because I'm, as you are well aware of, uh, very annoying. I sit on the fence a lot. But generally, I just, I really love going to games so much that I very rarely have a sort of critical review of a stadium after I've been. Because normally I'm just happy to explore, happy to discover new things, you know. Like, for example, Luton, I think consensus, pretty terrible modern football stadium uh, at championship level especially absolutely loved it first game of the season <laughs> Friday night sort of summer dusk uh, goals galore against Middlesbrough is one of the best experiences of the season for me so I can't uh, I, I can't think critically about stadium there it's always linked to my emotions yeah, I'm trying to think I mean I think in a weird way I, I'm not it's not an emotional decision. It's a rational one I'm making. Classic. And I, and I think I probably have to say the Valley okay. for a few reasons. Uh, the first time I went there was back in probably 2001. And it was a, uh, a Coca-Cola Cup tie. That was the name of the um, to, uh, the, the competition then. Uh, Charlton were a Premier League side. And we beat them on penalties, um, which as like a 12-year-old kid was pretty exciting to see us knock out a Premier League team. Jefferson Louis scored the winning penalty and said on BBC Radio Oxford afterwards that this was going to be the era of Jeff- Jefferson Louis, which I found very funny. Um, Sorry, the, that, the era, not the error. Yeah, there you go, mate. Oh, he said, oh, it was his mispronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I can't okay. believe you just corrected me on that. That's amazing. I was just, um, I was just clearing it up. My job uh, is to make sure that y- your excellent stories are clear for the listeners. We also had a couple of years ago one of my best ever away days where we um, a managerless Oxford went to play against Carl Robinson's Charlton pr- promotion chasing side and were two one down with four minutes to go and scored twice in front of the away fans. Mm. With Ryan Ledson scoring one of his last goals for the club um, and three weeks later Robinson was our manager, but that was unbelievable. And then 
one of my career highlights as well um, last season, joining BBC Radio Oxford and doing co-coms oh, with yeah. Jerome Smith and seeing Gavin White score an unbelievable goal. So I've got three amazing experiences um, as a as a fan and working there. And it was actually also the last game I went to before before um, no way I worked there for Five Live for the Middlesbrough game before before this all went. So it feels like it's a stadium which brings you know weighty moments to my life. We've heard of Tapas Alley and now we've got George at the Valley, a really nice <laughs> part of the pod. Uh, the press box at West Brom, wow, astonishing. So cool. It's like, it's, it's this sort of glass, it's just a huge glass window, which means that instead of being in like, you know, some little side room with no windows, uh, you can just sit. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I was necessarily meant to, but I just sat pretty much with my feet up on on the sort of ledge with just full, huge glass window in front with my laptop on my lap watching uh, an excellent game between West Brom and Charlton early on in the season. And I think they served up quite a tasty sausage roll maybe or could have been a pie, it's hard to remember. Um, But that was very exciting. Uh, The atmosphere when we went to Leeds West Brom on maybe my favourite of our EFL midweeker trips so far because of the night out that we had in the karaoke boat in Leeds. That's got to be up there. Um, But I'm going to go with Pompey. We had, again, this is kind of emotional. We had just a really fun trip there with two of our best mates a couple of years ago to watch Oxford. Um, I think Alex, Alex Mowat got sent off after he missed a penalty and then just slashed Nathan Thompson in the face as he sort of jit squared up to him afterwards in, in uh, having a go at him. So that, and we just had a, lovely, we had a lovely trip on the train. I just loved getting on the train and going to football matches. Anyway. I was kind of getting away from it. I, I think that's quite funny how I'm going emotional and you're going rational. I think if there, <laughs> if there, ever, were, if there ever was one seg- segment of Not the Top 20 that sums up the yin and yang of, uh, of, of how our brains work, that would probably be it. Um, lastly, let's do a little bit of Nicht die Top Acting, mm. which is our Zweite Bundesliga spin-off. George, Wow busy weekend in the league we were all eyes on the big game between first and second in hamburg between hamburger and armenia bielefeld uh, and it finished nil nil but that was kind of that was where my eyes were at the start of the weekend post weekend what are you looking back on as being notable i want to i want to go into bielefeld again okay sorry i think uh, i think i think they showed everything uh, that showed why you were wrong last week and why they are the champions elect. Seven points at the top of the table, getting they a were, point when they needed to. They had to they avoid were, defeat in this game, and they, they did so. They were shocking again. They were absolutely terrible. They had three shots that weren't blocked in the whole game. Job two, of which were up, two of which were outside the area. The pretty much the performance of the whole weekend was their keeper Ortega um, keeping out. I mean, I have no idea how he did it, how he kept the hamburgers out. Um, Dieter Hecking would have been absolutely heckling in the sidelines. Um, you know, Juve Nauhaus, the the uh, the manager of Bielefeld, should be, you know, he should do what Yapstam didn't do and should get a new job now based on this form because it's not going to last. And I tell you, when it falls apart, he is going to be the one making way. Um, they are in a false position. You know, they'll be very happy to have got that point away from home. Um, and they still have that gap between them and the chasing pack. But this is just a poor, poor team. Something is going to change. Something has to change. If they don't change, they stop picking up points. There's a phrase in there, how he kept the hamburgers out, I'll never know, which is basically me every time I walk past five guys, which is 
about about 600 meters away from the flat um look you keep forgetting in your brutal analysis of armenia bielefeld you keep forgetting that you, you say they're in a false position there's no one that merits that position there's no one in the chasing pack that feasibly will take that position I spoke about why Hamburg and Stuttgart were frustrating the hell out of me and other Zweite Bundesliga watchers last week. So imagine my shock, George, when I saw that Stuttgart, the Stuttgarters, went to Holsten Kiel this weekend and left. Massive opportunity. And Massive left, opportunity. Yeah, knowing that one of Armenia, Bielefeld and Hamburg were going to drop points, if not both of them, and they could make up a tasty gap here. Nope, they lost uh, with zero points. Uh trying to think what that would be in German. I can't think off the top of my head. With no points, they lost with a 3-2 scoreline at Holsten Kiel. What did we talk about last week? Oh, this is a team that likes to have a lot of possession. This is a team that tends to have more shots in the opposition. I'm getting bored of saying it, but it happened again. 60-40 in terms of possession. What else did we say? They're still relying on the old guard who have known a consistent failure of Stuttgart in the last few years, Mario Gomez up top, blunt again, immobile again, no goal again, playing in the number 10 role, bloody Daniel Didavi. I mean, how many times are they going to give this kid a chance? He was at Stuttgart at the start of his career. You'd have thought they'd know by now that he's probably not the guy to do the business for them. Yes, he's had a good career, but he's not doing it now. And there he is picking up a first half red card. I mean, it's just... It's embarrassing, really. They make the same mistakes again and again, and that's why Stuttgart not good enough to catch your, you know, the team that you're so anti in uh, Armenia Bielefeld at the top. And I must say, no matter what you say about about how they're doing it, the fact is they avoided defeat Bielefeld. They they knew that a point would be a great result uh, away at Hamburg, and that's what they got. So I mean, time is running out for them to be, or for you to be proven right. That's all I'll say. Maybe next week. We'll, uh, we'll discover some other gems from across the Zweite Bundesliga. So far, we've been quite top-heavy, but that is, well, that's where the story's been, certainly. But looking at the relegation battle, oh boy, just two points between Osnabrück in 13th and Wehen in 17th. I think we can get our teeth into that next week. Uh, any other bits of tapa that you want to go with? Maybe something left field. Maybe get maybe get some uh, the, the, the fried talk, squid. The Talk of the hamburgers. I think you know you probably have to have a slider next with you. Oh god! Um, I'm so <laughs> hung- I'm actually so hungry. <laughs> What's for dinner tonight? Um, pork. Span- Do you know what? It's it's actually Spanish style pork. So there you go. Oh. It's like we're taking a trip to How lovely to lovely Benidorm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, look, I think that's quite enough from us. Uh, it's been. I think quite an enjoyable Tuesday tapas pod. Hopefully uh, enjoyed by the listeners. Let us know what you think. Let us know which bit, which bits you enjoyed or did not enjoy. Um, numbers down as discussed during coronavirus. That is something that all podcasts have suffered, which means a share, a retweet, for example, always goes down extra well during these tough times. So please do support us. If you've got this far, if you've enjoyed the pod, if not, please don't share. Please do not share. We wouldn't want you to be... You know, we wouldn't want you to be in a false position of having to share content that you didn't enjoy. Um, but there you go. This has been the Not The Top 20 podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, we've interviewed Rob Earnshaw last week. If you haven't listened to that, you absolutely must. What, no. a, what a goal scorer and what a talker, by the way. 
Um, and this week we've got another EFL completed guest coming on who has had quite the career and who hopefully we are going to get some really good stories out of. So make sure you're subscribed to Going Up, Going Down. Thanks as always for listening. Thanks for all your support. Uh, and please do let us know what you thought about this podcast. We'll speak again soon.